You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gracious Lord, we are thankful for your word and for the wisdom that it contains and the fact that you have given us your word in our own language, our own tongues, so that we might know you, that we might know your will, that we might see all that you have revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, that we might see even the revelation of your nature in the person of Christ, who is for us wisdom from God. We pray that you would help us to see what is wise and foolish today, help us to learn the lessons from Scripture We pray that you would grant to us the teaching ministry of your spirit this morning as we look at these passages and these words together. May you be glorified in our hearts and incline our hearts to be obedient to you in every way that we might give to you the glory that you are due as part of the glory that is due to your name. You are great and you are glorious and we thank you for this time and may it it be part of what you use to sanctify us in the truth we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Let me get my stuff organized up here. Sorry for that. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Last week, uh, Justin was preached a message from the book of James chapter 1 about asking for wisdom and the promise that is there in Scripture that for those who are suffering trials and, and enduring trials that God is there to give us His wisdom. And Justin talked about some of the ways that we get wisdom by reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, and consulting godly people who also read, study, and obey the Word of God. And of course, the key in all of that is the Word of God itself. That is the source of wisdom. We are born fools. We are born with foolishness bound up in our hearts, alienated from God. And so we need God to give us what is wise and to show us wisdom in the pages of Scripture. And we want to pursue wisdom. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, by the providence of God, it just so worked out that Justin was able to preach on a passage dealing with asking God for wisdom, because that's what we're looking at in these closing chapters of Ecclesiastes 10, 11, and 12, which deal with the subject of wisdom. And Solomon is wanting to point us and direct us to drive us toward wisdom. For this book of Ecclesiastes, we have seen Solomon express frustration over the vanities and the things that vex us in life. Things don't always work out the way that we want. They don't always work out the way that we expect. We are disappointed by things. There are circumstances which for us are unforeseen, and they happen, and they strike us as sort of out of the blue and seemingly random. And yet, in Ecclesiastes, we have seen that Solomon acknowledges that these things are not random events, that they happen under the providential hand of a sovereign God. And yet these things, when viewed from the vantage point of humanity and our human reason and rationality, can seem as if they are completely random and they would lead us to to the conclusion that everything is vain, it's empty, it's meaningless, futile, and useless. And yet viewed from God's perspective, these things are not vain and empty and useless and futile. There is a reason and a purpose behind all of these events. So how are we to live in a life that strikes us with uncertain events and unforeseen circumstances and tragedies and dangers, etc. What would Solomon have us to do? He would have us to apply wisdom. He would have us to seek wisdom. And so that's what these last chapters of Ecclesiastes are all about. Wisdom as opposed to folly. And we're looking at verses 4 through 8 where Solomon applies the subject of wisdom to our work. Now up to this point in chapter 10, it almost might seem as if what Solomon is giving to us is a bit random 
as if he is tracing, chasing one rabbit trail after another as these subjects just kind of come up to his mind. We, we closed chapter 9 by saying Solomon say that wisdom, because he's pointing us to wisdom, wisdom is better than strength, wisdom is better than shouting, wisdom is better than weapons of war, and yet a little bit of folly can destroy so much good. Like a few flies in a perfumer's ointment, a little bit of folly can destroy so much good. And so Solomon wants us to avoid the folly and to pursue wisdom, and then in chapter 10, he describes the fool, verses 1 to 3, and then he descri- and, and to show how destructive folly can be. And then in verses 4 through 7, he talks about folly exalted to the highest places of the land. What happens when a prince or a king puts foolish people in charge of other things? Imagine if, if a, little, a few flies can destroy a good perfumer's ointment. Imagine what happens when that folly is given power when that folly is given responsibility, when that folly is given a position where it can wreak so much havoc on other people. And it's even more destructive. And then in verses 8 through 11, Solomon turns our attention to our work and labor. And so the description of the fool and then rulers and kings and now work and labor, it almost seems random, doesn't it? As if you're just kind of coming up with this subject. There is one theme that kind of ties all of chapter 10 and chapter 11 together, and it is this. In wanting us to see the benefit or the advantage of wisdom, Solomon is contrasting wisdom with folly. And so he shows us the advantage and contrasts that with the danger or destruction of being a fool. So that we might be drawn to wisdom as opposed to drawn to the folly. So that's what kind of ties it all together. So today we're looking at wisdom as it applies to our work. Next week we'll look at wisdom as it applies to our words, the things that we say. And then the following week, we'll close up chapter 10 and look again at rulers and kings and what Solomon says about wisdom applied to rulers and kings. So today our work, next week our words, and then rulers and kings. And that would take us to the end of chapter 10. It'll also take us to almost the end of the month of September. And then remember, we've got a break where we're going to be going through the Reformation topics and issues and texts um, through the month of October. And then beginning in November, we'll pick up Ecclesiastes again and finish that up by the end of the year. Uh, Christmas and New Year's, and then start something new at the beginning of the year. And in my mind, I just realized I just took all of us all the way through to the end of football season before it has even started, and here we are thinking about what's going on in the dead heart of winter, and we're still in the middle of summer, right? That's depressing. So before we get too discouraged or depressed, let's return to the book of Ecclesiastes, a sentence you never thought you'd hear uttered. So we're going to look in verses 8 and 9 at dangers that are associated with our work. And I think that the, the, the implication here in these first two verses, 8 and 9, is that folly has something to do, foolishness has something to do with the danger being present in work. Um, it's not entirely responsible for the dangers that are inherent in work. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see how Solomon shows us that the advantage of wisdom, uh, the, how, how wisdom can give an advantage to us in our work. All right, so first verses 8 and 9, the dangers of our work. You'll notice verses 8 and 9, there are four occupations that are listed here. Read verses 8 and 9 with me. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who splits logs may be endangered by them. There are four different occupations. The man who digs a ditch, the man who breaks through a wall, the man who quarries stones, and a man who splits logs. And Let's deal with each of them real quickly. The man who digs a pit. Now, this would be something that you would do, like if you, you would dig a pit for a well in those days. They didn't drill uh, little pipe-sized holes into the ground. They d- d- dug large pits that went deep into the ground. You would dig a pit for a well, maybe for refuse as well, uh, sort of an outhouse hole. Sometimes you would dig a pit for the sake of catching food, uh, putting a, a cover over top of it in order to catch your food, wild game, etc. So this is an illustration of a man who is, digs a pit for those purposes. 
Um, some of this is occupational work that is being done, digging a pit maybe for a house or for a well. Those are things that people did for an occupation. Also, the same is true with the man who breaks through a wall. And what Solomon is describing there is the act of destroying a wall or breaking down a wall as part of maybe building or remodeling or, or moving a wall or moving a building out of the way so that you can build something in place of it. And he who quarries stones is also an occupation. That would, that would refer to somebody who is, whose work is to cut stones and to prepare them for building. And the same with him who t uh, cuts timber or splits logs. You would use that for making lumber for building, or you would use the splitting of the logs to, to make uh, furniture. You would bust up wood to use in build, building furniture. So all of these are occupations that Solomon has described. He has four occupations in mind. Now, there is a danger associated with each and every one of these occupations. And Solomon tells us what the danger is. For the man who digs a pit, he might fall into the pit. That is, he, he might dig a hole and then forget that the hole is there, maybe wander out in the middle of the night, fall into the hole, and then remember, oh yeah, I dug a hole there. That's what I did yesterday. Or he may think that he is not as close to the edge of the hole as he actually is, and he takes a step back and he falls into the pit. That's a very real danger. Or somebody else covers up the hole and he walks over top of it and falls into it. He just forgets that what he did is actually a danger to himself. Have you ever been injured by doing something that you are completely responsible for the injury? You put something or did something and then you're injured by it and you realize, I did that. I mean, I own entirely that. You open up a cabinet to put something away and you think, I'll leave it open because I'm going to put something else there. You forget the cabinet's open and you stand up and hit your head on the corner of the cabinet. Right? And then you say to yourself, that was entirely me. I, I was involved in this activity, I did this stupid thing, forgot that I had done it, and now it caused me injury. So it is with the man who digs a pit. How about the serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall? And the idea here is that you, you break through a wall and you find, your, find that inside the wall itself is a viper's den. And in that culture and in that environment, that was not uncommon for a snake to find a way into the hollow of a wall between uh, bricks or rocks in the wall, some cavity inside, and to have a nest there. And so here you have a man who is destroying a wall, and before he even realizes it, his hand is in a serpent's den, and he gets bit by a serpent in it. Him who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And the man picks up a stone, drops it on his foot, he loses his grip, crushes his finger with the stone, or he picks up a stone, it's just a small thing, and he puts his back out. And he's injured by it. He's out of work for a week because he can hardly walk, and he was just picking up a little tiny stone. You ever had this happen to you? Right? So these are dangers that are associated with these occupations. He who splits logs may be endangered with them by them. The axe, the head may fly off of the axe and, and hurt you. Uh, you may find yourself getting something caught, a body part caught in between the logs and something goes awry and you're pinched inside of the logs. These are all occupational hazards that Solomon is describing here. And what I want you to notice is that all of these occupations that he's describing here, they all have an element of danger inherent in them. And all of these, all of these things could happen to anyone. It's not necessarily the foolish person that this strikes. It might be the fool that this happens to, but these are things that can happen to wise people too. Wise people are crushed by rocks. Wise people are hurt by logs. Wise people are injured at their job. All of these occupations are things that involve the exertion of physical effort, sometimes great physical effort, and there is a danger that is inherent in each one of these things. So notice that Solomon doesn't describe the work of a desk jockey like me, right? You're sitting down at your desk and you might slam your fingers in the drawer or you get carpal tunnel typing on a keyboard or something like that. These are all physical, uh, physical, laborious tasks that he is describing and all of them have some element of inherent danger. And when danger strikes in these occupations, sometimes it seems quite random and almost freakish, right? It doesn't always happen that the guy who quarries stones 
is hurt by the stones. Sometimes a freak accident happens and you think, this is something that I have done a hundred times before, and now I get injured doing the exact same thing I have done a hundred times before. And sometimes there is, there is, there seems a randomness to the person to whom this happens. Why is it that the stone falls on one rock quarrier and not on another rock quarrier? That sounds, seems quite random, doesn't it? Just earlier this year, I was, I was helping a friend on a, with a roofing project. I was up on some scaffolding on a, on a porch, and something slipped in a heartbeat, and about 12 feet down off of the porch. Next thing I knew, I was waking up with my face in the gravel, kind of coming to, having a hard time breathing, wondering which or how many of my bones were broken. Now listen, I have done crazy, stupid stuff on scaffolding. I've done crazy, stupid stuff on roofs that I never tell my wife about at all until I'm all done doing it. And nothing like that has ever happened. And then this time it happened. Why? The, the scaffolding moved just an inch, and suddenly I'm on the ground. It's completely freakish. I have done, I have climbed up and down scaffolding hundreds of times in my life with never a problem. And I was not doing anything stupid or careless or mindless at all. And suddenly I'm waking up on the ground, gasping for air. How does that happen? It seems like a freak of nature, doesn't it? Freakish and almost unpredictable. And there's no telling to whom it is going to happen. There was somebody else with me on the scaffolding, on the porch. Didn't happen to him, but it happened to me. Why did it happen to me? We always tend to look at things like this that happen, the courier getting crushed by a rock, or you drop a rock on your toe, or you slam your fingers in the door. And what is our typical response as Christians? We like to sanctify it and say, what is the Lord trying to tell me through this accident? What is the Lord trying to tell me? Let me help you out with that. The Lord is not trying to tell you anything. The Lord doesn't try to tell you something. The Lord doesn't try to do anything. You can never say God is trying to. He never tries to. He either does or he doesn't, and God has no problems communicating with us. He does not stutter. We don't have to interpret circumstances. He, if he wants to get his message through, he can do that. He doesn't have to, he's not sitting in heaven scratching his head saying, how am I going to get this guy to pay attention to something? Maybe I'll make a tragedy strike. The other temptation is for people to think that, that when tragedy like this strikes, that it is some sort of karmic justice that is taking place. Right? This bad thing has happened, so I must have done something else. I wouldn't have slammed my fingers in the desk drawer if I had not done stupid, something stupid earlier. Maybe, I, maybe God is trying to get my attention, or maybe God is trying to teach me a lesson or execute justice on me or judgment on me. Maybe if I hadn't yelled at my wife this morning, I wouldn't have slammed my fingers in my desk drawer. Maybe that's what the case is. No, that's, these are just the things that happen because we live in a sin-cursed fallen world. Bad things happen. Horrible things happen. Tragedies strike. From our vantage point, they are random. But trust me, from God's vantage point, they are not random at all. He's not trying to do anything. He's not trying to keep these things from happening. He's not trying to teach us anything through them. We can learn things through them, but we can never divine um, and read the mind of God and to know what the lesson behind them is. We do trust that in all of these events, he's working out a perfect and sovereign plan. Okay, so we have four occupational hazards. They seem to be apparently random when they strike. They can strike anyone at any time, the foolish as well as the wise. They don't always happen. Sometimes these things... Look, it's not every time you quarry a stone that you're injured by them. Do you realize that 99.99% of the time police officers go to work and come back and nothing happens? Right? 99.9% .9 of the time roofers climb up on roofs and get down off of roofs and nothing happens. Most of the time these things don't happen. But they do happen and they do strike. And the wise are not necessarily immune to these things. So there is danger present for both the wise man and the fool. And this is what Solomon is describing. 
in our work and in our activity, there are dangers that are present. And by the way, earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has described our work in terms of it being toil and vexing and, and laborious and, and vain and empty and useless. The fact that they are filled with danger and these things can happen to us while we are working is one of the things that makes it feel so vain and so useless, right? So empty and purposeless that these seemingly random events happen. So those are the dangers. Now, there, there's another interpretation of these verses that I want to make you aware of because I, I don't even know if a study Bible that you have might, be, might take this text, text a different way, but here's how some people have interpreted it. They would say that what is Solomon is describing verses 8 and 9 with the person who digs the ditch and the serpent who breaks, uh, bites the person breaking through a wall, that these, these events that happen, these tragedies that happen, accidents that happen, are in fact a form of poetic justice. In other words, that the person who does these things has this thing coming. So they would point, for instance, to a phrase that David uses in Psalm 7, I think it's around verse 15 or so, 14, 15, where David describes his enemies digging a pit for him, and then his enemies fall into the pit. So David says, my enemies have dug a pit for me, meaning that they were setting something up to be a danger to him, seeking to trap him or harm him, and those who dug the pit fell into the pit themselves. And so there's this poetic justice and, and so a couple of commentators say that what Solomon is describing is that the, the actions of a fool sometimes reap the results of the foolish behavior. So, for instance, a fool thinks that if he can just have yet another drink, that that drink will end up calming him down. And so he drinks and drinks and drinks to remain calm and to be able to handle life, only to find that in the end, the drink that he thinks brings him calm actually kills him. Or the man who, who gives way to his lust and seeks to be satisfied outside of the confines of God's boundary of marriage, only to find that because he has sought after satisfying his lust, he ends up being a slave to those lusts and then can never be satisfied even inside the bounds of marriage. And it's true that oftentimes foolish behavior has built into the consequences its own punishment, right? Sometimes foolish behavior has built into the consequences its own punishment. There is a sense in which we sow one thing and reap another. Um, the fool doesn't concern himself with those things. The fool just does his actions only to find that in the end, what he reaps is the whirlwind. He sows to the wind and reaps the whirlwind. And some people think that's what Solomon is describing here. Somebody digging a pit, seeking to do evil, but then by a twist of providence, that person ends up falling into his own pit. There's a good biblical example of that with Haman and the gallows that Haman hung from in the book of Mordecai, in the book of Mordecai, the book of Esther. And it was Mordecai that Haman had built the gallows for. Remember that? And he intended to murder, to hang Mordecai on those gallows, but by not a twist of providence, but by God's outworking of that providence, Mordecai, Haman ended up hanging on his own gallows. And that's an example of someone building a pit and then him falling into it. And they would say the same thing about breaking through a wall. Somebody tries to tunnel through a wall to break into a city or break into a house to steal or to plunder something only to find that he has met with serpents and he gets bitten and he dies in the process of doing something that is evil. So that's one possible interpretation of that. I think it's more difficult to have that interpretation in verse 9. For instance, where Solomon says, he quarries a stone may be hurt by them. What is the, how is the act of quarrying stone to be taken as something evil or malicious that ends up coming back to bite you? See, it's a little bit difficult to have that in verse 9. That's why I don't think that Solomon is describing here any kind of poetic justice. I think that what Solomon is saying is, in our work that we do, the labors that we do, there are dangers there. That given an element of vanity and uselessness and meaninglessness and frustration, and those dangers are there and they strike us quite randomly. And here is how wisdom 
help solve those dangers. That brings us to verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, I think, are describing the same thing. Let's read them together. If the axe is dull and it does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Now, there's a proverb in verse 10, there's a proverb in verse 11, and then at the end of verse 10 is that statement, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. I think that that one statement is the central idea of not just this passage, but all of chapter 10. If you could boil down Solomon's commendation of wisdom to us, it would be this. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. And that's certainly the point of verses 10 and 11. These are two Proverbs, and you'll notice that verse 10 draws upon uh, one of the things that we saw in verse 9. The axe, a hue splits logs may be endangered by them. And then in verse 10, Solomon talks about sharpening the axe for splitting of lumber. Verse 11 draws upon something mentioned in verse 8. The serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. So in verse 10 and 11, Solomon is giving us two Proverbs that are both saying the identical thing. In verse 10, we see wisdom applied early in a task ends up leading to success. In verse 11, we see how wisdom not applied at the beginning of a task ends up leading to death or danger. And so he's making two statements, trying to say the exact same thing both times, one positively and one negatively. So let's look at verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Now this is a very straightforward and simple illustration. Your job, job is to your job is to fall trees or to, to cut down a forest or to split logs or to split wood or to, to make furniture. Doesn't it make sense, just common sense wise, that you would sharpen and prepare your tools before you begin the task? Right? A wise individual would say there is something to there is something about planning the task, making sure that I have the materials necessary, that my tools are sharp, that I'm ready to go before I would do this, so that I can work smart and not hard. But not for the fool. The fool just says, I'm going to split wood. Doesn't even think about the tool being sharp. The fool's not concerned about what might happen or even the fruitfulness of what he does. The fool just does what he does. And so he has to exert more strength than the wise man who takes the time to sharpen the tool at the beginning. So, ladies, and I don't mean to be sexist in this at all, you understand this concept very well. You say, it would take me 15 minutes to clean up my kitchen real quick to organize things before I start cooking Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving meal. So you take some time at the beginning to get things out, to do the grocery shopping before you begin the task, knowing that it is much easier to do it beforehand and more fruitful and more productive with your time than to do it later on. Or a guy would say, I'm going to take, in my case, five or six hours or days to clean up my shop before I start this brand new woodworking project, knowing that even though the project might take me, say, four hours to do, if I spend a little bit of time at the beginning, getting my tools ready, sharpening everything, getting it all out, organizing my shop, cleaning things up a bit, I can save the time that I'm not end up looking for all of my tools in the chaos that is my shop. That's simply the principle. You sharpen the axe at the beginning. And in sharpening the axe at the beginning, you are ensuring success. And so that you don't have to work hard to overcome your lack of preparation. Now, one of the biblical qualities of a fool is that they do not think of the future. They don't think ahead. A foolish individual lives for now, right now. I want what I want right now, and so I'm going to get it. Without any thought as to the consequences, without any thought as to what might be required to get that, he just wants what he wants now. So he satisfies his own lust now. He thinks of only in terms of what is now. So springtime comes and it's time to plant the seeds. The fool doesn't think of the harvest and the fruit that is to come. He just says on that day, at that moment, at that very instant, I don't feel like planting seeds. So he doesn't plant seeds. 
And the book of Proverbs says, then harvest comes, and guess what? There's no, no crop. Or the fool plants the seeds, and then the harvest comes, and he sees the fields white for the harvest, and he says, right now, at this moment, I don't feel like harvesting fields. So I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here in my house and enjoy my entertainment and, and watch football rather than work in my garden and do nothing. And so then the harvest passes, and all of the fruit is spoiled, and then winter comes, and what does the fool have to eat? See, that is how Proverbs describes the fool. The wise man says, this is my task, this is what I want, and so I will back up and I will do this and this and this and this so that when I get into this task, it will be easier, it will be quicker, it will be more efficient, I can do it once and do it right, I can plan ahead, it'll all be there, and it'll be easy. But the fool just says, let's go, let's go cut some wood. And he grabs whatever axe is at hand and just starts swinging away. He doesn't think in terms of if I sharpen the axe, I get more productivity out of it. So that's the analogy, a real simple, real simple illustration. And there's some wisdom in what Solomon says here, just in terms of, uh, let me apply this to our own lives, I should say. In ministry, it makes sense to plan well in advance to do something. So if, if your desire is to pastor a church or your desire is to preach or teach the Word of God, it is wise to take some time ahead of time to learn how to do those tasks, to educate yourself, to prepare for that spiritually, mentally, emotionally, so that by the time you get to the point of actually doing that, you can be fruitful and effective at it. If your desire is to teach the Word or to preach Scripture, then you should take some time to, to hone that edge, to sharpen your skills, to get wise and godly counsel, and to, to begin to pursue that path in a slow and methodical way, rather than just standing up and saying, I'm just going to do this. When we started Awana in our church years ago, it took us almost an entire year of planning and preparation before we actually had our first Awana night. The missionary came, and we had elders meetings, and we talked about funding it, and what would we do, and how would we structure it, and we got volunteers together, and we trained and equipped those volunteers, and then we advertised it, and we had a registration night. All of that planning and preparation, a whole year's worth, went into it so that on the first night of Awana, it wasn't flawless, but our axe was sharpened. And we, we at least knew that we would, had planned for success and planned for effectiveness when we did it. We have one of the missionary families that our church has supported, and they're here today, so I'm not going to try and make them look very good. But they were on the mission field. Well, they went out to Paraguay to in, uh, translate the Scripture into a foreign tongue with a tribe of people who had no written language, no alphabet, and no written word in their own tongue. It took them almost a decade of sitting and listening and watching and noting and, and observing and talking and learning just to prepare to, to, be, to, to make an alphabet and then to out of that alphabet to make a written language and then out of that written language to teach them to read and then once they had taught them to read, to translate scripture for them so that they could have the word of God in their own tongue. That's a decade of preparation of sharpening the axe. A fool would never do that. A fool would never do that. A fool thinks, this is what I want right now, I'm going to do it right now. And they don't think of the future. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So if you back up and you apply wisdom to our work, it can make it successful. Less effort. You don't have to work as hard to overcome your folly. That's the idea. And the second analogy in verse 11, if the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Now he's saying the same thing, but in a negative sense. So in verse 10, you have wisdom applied early in the task. It makes it easy. Less effort. More successful. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. But take the snake charmer, for instance, who decides, I'm not going to apply any wisdom to this. I'm just going to march into this dangerous situation. This is a man whose occupation 
obviously has the inherent danger of a serpent there. He just goes into the dangerous situation without applying any wisdom or forethought to it whatsoever. And he doesn't apply wisdom at the beginning of the task, which would be to charm the snake from the very beginning. Instead, he plays around with it. He doesn't use his wisdom, doesn't use his skill at the beginning. And so what happens? He's bitten. And as a result of being bitten, he loses not just the profit. You'll see verse 11. There's no profit for the charmer. He's robbed of his profit. He's also robbed of his life. And so that is the lack of wisdom applied at the beginning of a task. So what is Solomon saying? Applying wisdom to our work can take some of the vexation out of our work. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has described our labor over and over again, right? And he has used terms like, like vain and empty and futile and frustration. He's used the negative words for work like toil and labor and, and describing the exhausting and frustrating nature of the work that we do. This is what it means to live in a sin-cursed Genesis 3 fallen world. That's what it means. So our work is not a curse, but our work is cursed. We've seen that through Ecclesiastes. What does wisdom do for our work? Does it remove the curse from our work entirely so that everything we do now is, is 100% productive and not exhausting at all? Does it do that? No, wisdom does not do that. Wisdom does not promise that when you go to work tomorrow, if you apply wisdom, that nothing bad will happen, that you won't fall off a scaffolding, that you won't hit your hand with a hammer, that you won't slam your fingers in your desk drawer, or that you won't uh, pull your back out doing something uh, part of your work. Wisdom doesn't promise that bad things won't happen. Wisdom doesn't guarantee that our work will be nothing but a joy and a delight and have no vexation at all, but wisdom mitigates. It numbs the pain of that vanity, if you will. Wisdom has a way of, of making us more successful, making us more productive, making it just a little bit easier so that our work is not entirely vexing and vain and feeling useless. If wisdom makes you successful in your work that you do and makes it so that your work is easier, that takes some of the pain out of it, doesn't it? Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. There's nothing more frustrating, more anxiety-creating, and more toilsome than working and working and working and having no success. So Solomon is commending wisdom to us. Now, what would wisdom at work look like? Well, that would take an entire study of the book of Proverbs, which we're not going to do. But if you read through the book of Proverbs, what do you see? You see that wisdom applied to our work means that we work hard, we work with diligence, we work with excellence, we do the best job that we can, that we are honest in our dealings, that we deal well with our employees and our employers and our coworkers, and that we save well and that we spend wisely and that we use our time wisely and that we do it with diligence. If we took the entire book of Proverbs and applied that to the day-to-day, Monday through Friday, work a grind a day that we do, it would be much easier. It wouldn't be perfect. It wouldn't be glorious. It wouldn't be heaven. It might not even be a taste of heaven. But part of, the, part of the purpose of the vexation of our work is to point us forward to that final rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Solomon wants us to walk with wisdom because that is what it, that's what obeying God and keeping His commandments looks like. Because that's what he says at the end. This is the whole duty of man. Obey God and keep His commandments. Obedience and wisdom go hand in hand. Always. It is never foolish to obey God's word. It is never wise to disobey God's word. It is always foolish to disobey, and it is always wise to obey. So Solomon wants us to walk in obedience. What does walking in obedience look like? It means seeking the wisdom that is in Scripture, applying that to our work, because here, Solomon says, is the advantage. Wisdom can bring success. Let's pray together. Our gracious and most merciful God, we are thankful that you have put us in this place, and at this time, that you have given us your word and that you have made these things clear to us. Help us to apply these principles of wisdom to our lives and to our work. We may labor for you. 
We know that as long as we live in a sin-cursed and fallen world that we will always be under that curse and our work will always be under that curse. We pray that you would help us to apply the principles of Scripture and the wisdom that is in Scripture so that we might live lives that are obedient to you and obedient before you so that as you look upon all that we do and all the effort that we put forth in this world that you may be pleased with it because it is done out of hearts that are yielded to you and obedient to you. We ask that you would accomplish this work in our hearts and in our lives. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.